Good morning again, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. This is Dave McGuire, um, revisiting uh, presuppositional apologetics. This is lesson number six, uh, getting them to Jesus. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak to your body. Uh, thank you that uh, you have given us your scripture to guide us. Uh, thank you that you've given us the spirit to translate our um, fumbling uh, words into something that uh, is pleasing to your ear and that can be heard by the unbeliever. Um, we ask for more opportunities, Lord, to be in the lives of those who don't know you so that they can see our lives and hear our words and, and um, uh, that uh, your, your spirit can change them. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the good news of the gospel? Is it simply about what happens to you after you die? Or does it affect how you live? What is salvation? What or whom is it that you need to be saved from? How can one be sure? Aren't there lots and lots of devout believers of many faiths? What makes this Jesus so special? The term leading others to Christ can be very daunting. One of the reasons we hesitate to share our faith is we, as Americans especially, like immediate resolution. Everyone on Fuller House resolves their problems, misunderstandings, and issues in a convenient 22-minute format. There's tremendous comfort in knowing that you can turn on Netflix and watch every episode of Frasier with a click of the remote. I'm recording this lesson on a tiny computer which lives in my pocket and has instantaneous access to all of human knowledge. So what happens when I tell someone about the gospel and they don't convert on the spot? What happens when they have an objection I can't answer? What happens when they ask, why should I believe in a God who would allow child trafficking? Our tendency is to argue, to reach for something, or to just give up. But how many of us met and married our spouses on the same day? How many of us taught our children to walk in an afternoon or gave up on it when they didn't learn right away? Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither he knew who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Relationship building takes time. It takes investment. It takes energy. It takes a village, to borrow a phrase. And most importantly, the outcome is not on your shoulders. We are not the difference makers when it comes to who is moved by the Holy Spirit and who walks away. God gives the growth. God may use secondary, ordinary, stumbling and fumbling means to plant and to water, for we are God's workers, but only God gives the growth. Thus, Christian, neither outcome is on you. What is on you, however, is to open your mouth and speak the truth that God has placed in you. Plant, water, let God determine what takes root and when. What we're fighting is fear, and it's genuine fear. Now, don't take this as a condemnation if you are fearful of these encounters. My palms still get sweaty 
my heart races and sometimes I can feel and hear my heartbeat in my ears when I know that I, there's an opening for the gospel. But I trust that the Spirit will give me the words uh, that I need and the outcome is to the Lord's glory, whatever it is. And if I'm to walk away rejoicing from these encounters, the more I understand about that vertical relationship, that is the incredible journey from the fall to salvation and ultimately to glory and the utter incomprehensibility of undeserving me being on the receiving end of the greatest gift in eternity, the more grace and mercy and peace I will offer to that person that God has placed in front of me. So there's no room then for endless arguments or verbal body slams here. The goal is much, much simpler, much more beautiful, and so much more captivating than any well-constructed argument, gotcha question, or any linguistic gymnastics ever could be. The goal is Jesus, him and him alone. Once the unbeliever's strongholds have been breached, once the contradictions in her worldview have been made glaringly obvious, we then point her to the only thing that makes sense, that true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to reconcile our broken, ultimate relationship. That of all all of our seeking and striving after human relationships and the endless disappointment that abounds therefrom is merely a placeholder. Farnham, the author we've been following, puts it this way. We are not proclaiming a message of moral transformation or social good. The gospel message is clear. Guilty sinners can find reconciliation with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. A clear gospel presentation requires us to address the unbeliever's guilt before God because of her sin and her need to repent. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a sacrifice for sins and that salvation is obtained by faith in Jesus apart from one's own merit. Christian, you've heard that phrase so many times in so many different ways that sometimes it loses its impact. But think of the lifting of that burden. You can stop working, Jesus says to the unbeliever. Stop trying so hard. You could never do it on your own. The work has been done for you. It is finished. Recognize your sin, repent of it, and rest in the work that has already been done on your behalf. If we spend our time continually answering objections, my favorite of which is, could God microwave a burrito so hot even he couldn't eat it? But we never get to Christ We have not done our job as planters and waterers, as witnesses and ambassadors. Once the intellectual objections are cleared, the questions asked and answered, the Christian narrative presented, now it's time to talk about the claims and work of Christ crucified. His claim to divinity, the unification of God and man, his life, death, and resurrection. How a person reacts to this and what a person does with Jesus is a matter of eternity. So nothing else is as important. 1 Timothy 1 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths 
and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. My brother and I once were having lunch with an unbelieving friend. My brother and I liked to argue a lot about big things and little things, important things and inconsequential things. He gets to be in heaven before me, so I like to think that that's the Lord's way of telling me that ultimately he won the argument. Uh, we were arguing in front of this unbelieving friend about the fate of people who'd never heard the gospel. I won't go into who was taking what side or what evidence or scriptures were being presented. Suffice to say that we were argued until we were blue in the face and neither of us convinced the other one. But also, neither of us then went on to give the gospel to the unbelieving friend who was sitting right in front of us. The Lord had placed this man there with us and we wandered into vain discussion. So the question is, where should we have gone? So let's talk about Jesus. The last time I encountered someone who claimed that Jesus never existed, I was actually seriously surprised. This was someone I considered intelligent and thoughtful, but who holds one of the most singularly ignorant historical assumptions one can make. Ignoring every thoughtful scholar, both believing and unbelieving, ignoring thousands of years of scholarship, ignoring all but the most extreme liberals and atheists, all of whom agree uh, that there was a historic Jesus. Bart Ehrman, who rejects many of the claims of Christ, nonetheless presents a solid case of the historical facts for Jesus. Farnham, in his book, um, Every Believer Confident, which is what we're working through right now, helpfully breaks this down. First, eyewitness accounts which exhibit carefulness in the reporting of facts show that the testimony was not merely legend or fable, the Gospels provide multiple eyewitness accounts, along with carefully researched accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, and death. Luke 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that, we, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Second, these are ev events which took place in public, in historically verified locations. They were written down within the lifetime of many of the people who would have first read them. Falsehoods or even exaggerations could have been easily exposed at the time of authorship, as there are hundreds of historically verifiable names, dates, places, events, towns, etc. There are hostile sources, both within and outside of Scripture, who agree that the events occurred. The meaning of the events may be in dispute, but the facts aren't. The tomb was empty. So the question remains, was it grave robbing? Was it grieving disciples? Or was it something far greater? Jesus also claimed to be God. This is a radical and tremendously disruptive assertion. 
It removes by its very essence any ability to see Jesus as simply a good teacher or a wise moral leader. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, and is, the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a friend, fiend. <laughs> and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have, to, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. To dismiss Jesus as a good moral teacher cannot possibly be true. He claimed to be God in the flesh. As a good moral person does not claim to be God. Now, this point may be countered with, well, Jesus never said, I am God. I've heard this claim before, and it's down amount to saying, Dave, you never told me you were a father, and me replying, well, I've introduced you to my daughters. They call me dad. There are ways to indirectly show the truth of something without stating the obvious. So we must look at what he said and how people around him reacted to Jesus saying it. Daniel 7 is an extremely difficult passage in the Old Testament. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now reconcile that with Isaiah 42. I'm the Lord that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Unbelieving Jewish scholar, scholars will admit that Daniel 7 seems to indicate a second divine figure called the Son of Man. This term is used by Jesus to describe himself many, many times, and is used in the New Testament over 80 separate occurrences. There is so many more. In, G in John 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Using the name God gave to identify himself to Moses. The Jewish leaders then picked up stones and tried to kill him. They didn't do this because Jesus used an improper verb tense. He was claiming to be God. Unless it was true, this was blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Certainly not in the way Jewish people of the time, or indeed practicing Jews, believe today. A suffering servant who dies without reestablishing the earthly kingdom of David, it can't be. Further, this helps us to answer objections about the God of the Old Testament and the God of New Testament being different gods. If Jesus came to fulfill what the Old Testament promised, there's no conflict between the Testaments. John 14 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you had known my father also. 
from now on you do know him and have seen him. This is the most liberating and most exclusive claim in the history of the universe. You don't have to hunt and guess and hope you're right about reconciliation with God. Jesus gives you the answer because Jesus is the answer because Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but not in secret. Following his death and resurrection, he was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. His resurrection is the ultimate vindication of his claims to be God and Messiah. An estimate given by a prominent scholar is that about 75% of all scholars, both believing and non, agree that it is inescapable historical fact that Jesus' tomb was empty three days after the crucifixion. What else could explain a tiny group of followers, some of whom who claimed after his death not to know him or during his trial not to know him, some of whom hid themselves away following his death, transform themselves, transform themselves, they were transformed by the Holy Spirit into a movement which would gain thousands of followers who constantly face death just to proclaim faith in a resurrected, crucified criminal. The only logical explanation is that these early followers saw the risen Christ. So let's discuss now a little more of, uh, about some of the facts that make the resurrection account historically reliable. First, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. If the gospel narrative were a fake, first century authors would never include this detail. The testimony of women at the time was only considered about half as reliable as that of a man. Second, the men didn't believe the women at first. This shows A, that they weren't looking for a resurrection, they weren't expecting it, and it B, paints them in an incredibly bad light in that they failed to grasp who Jesus was and who he said he was and what he said about himself and what he came to do. We have a basic presupposition that those who preceded us were ignorant rubes who could be duped by simple magic or believed anything they were told. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. This can be countered pretty simply by asking, hey, if Smith's disappeared tomorrow, could you grow your own food? And then letting them know that the Sadducees, an extremely prominent group at the time, didn't believe in a resurrection nor in an afterlife. Wait, I've heard before. There were large groups of people at that time who didn't believe in an afterlife? Yep, I say. Does that sound familiar? People in history were just as smart and, in fact, more capable in a lot of ways than we are today. Challenging folks with these claims and facts leads us then to the most important question we can ask. What will you do with Jesus? Christianity is centered on a person, not an ideal or an abstract idea. We've spoken before about what Farnham calls atheistic naturalism. That is, we are here because of a random set of particles acted on by chance and time, just happen to produce you and me and everything we know. There is no purpose then to anything, let alone my life or your life, because purpose implies intelligence. And if there is no intelligence or design in the universe, whatever happens just happens. It's meaningless. Contrast that with a worldview centered on a person with intelligence and individuality and work, design, purpose, and meaning. That person is Jesus Christ. Our purpose 
as humans made in God's image, is to bring glory to God. The meaning of life is inherent in God's intent in creation. Desire for purpose and meaning is a longing deep within the soul of every person. When a person who believes in chaotic, random universe talks of meaning and purpose, they steal our language. Press them on that. Talk to them about meaning and purpose. If meaning and purpose don't exist, how can they have meaning and purpose? Do they create it themselves? If they created it themselves, does it mean the same thing to every other person? Does meaning and purpose um, affect how you live? Further, in Christianity, we find identity. We are made in God's image to know him and to reflect his glory. Without this, we look for our identity in success or in relationship or in family, all things that will ultimately fail us or we will fail them. Chaos and randomness have no explanation for the fact that we know something is wrong, deeply wrong within us and with the world around us. We know it's wrong to murder, but if morality is solely personal, who can object to murder? Why not violate another person? She is just another set of random, meaningless, purposeless chemicals. We know that's not true. Everyone knows a person has value, but only Christianity truly explains it. And the Christian knows that the world then is cursed with sin. That's why we cannot see our ultimate purpose. That's why we need to be, have it revealed to us. Evil resides in the human heart, and this evil reverberates throughout creation. Where are we going? What is the end of all of this? If there is no afterlife, no purpose, then there is no reward for good and no punishment for evil. So if there is no good and no evil, why not do whatever you please? You're not going to be punished if you get away with it. Christianity, on the other hand, teaches that eternity matters, that God will bring ultimate justice. We are looking to develop what Farnham calls a Jesus-oriented apologetic. Focusing too much on the periphery or on speculation leads us away from the central point. Rather, obstacles to belief and intellectual objections should be cleared away not for their own sake, but to, should bring us to the point where we can clearly, compellingly present the Jesus of the Bible, who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and who bore the weight of our sins so that we may have rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that rest. Thank you that we can lean on your work and your life and that you have borne the weight of our sins for us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for guiding us so that we can know him through your spirit Thank you that you have given then us to be secondary, ordinary means by which we plant and water those around us with the seeds of the gospel. Give us that opportunity, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.